Good morning, everyone. Hymn 954. Nine hundred fifty-four stands a one and the amen at the end. We all believe in one true God who created earth and heaven the Father who to us in love has the right of children given. He in soul and body feeds us all we need his hand provides us through all snares and perils leads us, watching that no harm betide us. He cares for us by day and night. All things are governed by his mind. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Everlasting God, you have ordained and constituted the service of angels and men in a wonderful order. Mercifully grant that as your holy angels always serve and worship you in heaven, so by your appointment they may also help and defend us here on earth. Through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Good, good. Happy Michaelmas. Um, the verse of the week is Jeremiah 29, 11. Let's speak this together. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. What does it mean that the Lord says, I know? Well, sure. I mean, you'd th you would think that somebody would know their own thoughts, right? D do you need to tell somebody, I know what I'm thinking? It's assumed. So there's a reason why the Lord says, I know the thoughts. I'm aware they're on mind. Yes, yes, they're on his mind. And if they are on his mind, what does that mean about these things, these thoughts? That he's thinking of us. Yes, for how long? Always. Constantly, which means he has never forgotten about you. 
because he knows the thoughts that he has toward you. Okay? This is the other thing that who thinks? God. That God thinks. That doesn't always mean that your thoughts are going to be exactly the same as his, but he knows the thoughts he has for you, even when those thoughts are not reciprocated. So that even when his thoughts to you are thoughts of love, and you have no thoughts but hatred toward him, it doesn't change the thoughts that he thinks toward you. And as always, prepositions are important. Toward is important. Why? Because it's not about. He doesn't have thoughts about you. He has thoughts toward you, which means there's motion, there is action. When the Lord thinks a thought, it is directed by the word. The thought that the Lord thinks, the will that the Lord wills, is enacted by the word that the Lord speaks. The example for that is in creation. The Lord speaks, let uh, creation come into existence. But the Lord wills first that it would come into creation, and his will is made manifest in his word, which also forces you to understand the word as something more than sounds coming out of a mouth, which you'll see in just a second. Certainly. And when the thoughts of the, God, of the Lord are coming toward you, there is the active nature of God contrasted with the passive nature of faith. God is a God who gives, and your faith is a faith that receives. God is a God who acts. You and your faith are things that are acted upon. And what is what is it that the Lord would think for you and will for you? Peace and not evil. And to give you a future and a hope. What does it mean that the Lord wants to give you a future? What does it mean about you previous to the Lord's will? Or apart from the Lord? Okay, you're lost. Use the language of the text. If the Lord wants to give you a future and a hope, what did you have previously? No future and no hope. You have no future and you have no hope apart from the Lord who will be the one to give you a future and a hope because there is no life apart from Him. There is no peace apart from Him. There is no future and no hope apart from Him. Now here's the, here's the last thing. Where is the fulfillment of this saying found and made manifest. Where is it that the Lord's thoughts are made manifest to you, come toward you? Where is it that the Lord gives you peace and not evil and gives you a future and hope? Yes, the crucifixion. You're not wrong, Bill. It is in baptism, but the gifts that are given in baptism and at the altar are first and foremost one upon the cross. When you are baptized, you're baptized into the death of Christ and raised again in the resurrection of Christ. So it is in the death and resurrection of Christ that all of this is made known. Why do you have a future? Because Christ has died for you. Why do you have a hope? Because Christ has been raised and because you are in Christ. 
So all of the thoughts that the Lord thinks toward you are made manifest in the word that enacts his thought. And that word is the flesh and blood person of his son, Christ. Okay, let's speak this again. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. What is the third petition of the Lord's Prayer? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will done? God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, which do not want us to God's name or let his kingdom come. And when he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die, this is his good and gracious will. All right. Thy will be done on earth. That is uh, to say, as with the previous petitions that we have looked at, you praying that the something of God be also among us. May the will of God be done on earth among us also as it is already done in heaven. Uh, there are two parts to this. The first is the, the offensive side of God. We use military language because this is kind of a military petition. The offensive side of God, that God is going to actively, offensively break and hinder every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and even your sinful flesh. So you are going to be broken by God, and really it begins at baptism, right? Because what happens to the old Adam? Drowns and dies. Baptism is a violent act. Baptism is death. Drowning and dying, and that means that every single day, according to the catechism, what happens? Daily. Daily drowned and die. The old Adam keeps popping his head up, and you have to keep pushing him back down there and holding his head under until the bubbles stop. Every day you have to do it. So uh, there is an offensive nature to the Lord because he will fight for his people. That's important, that he fights for his people, has two sides. One, that he takes the offensive against his enemies, and two, fighting for, on behalf of his people, means that he is also being defensive, taking care of his people, protecting them. So not only is he going to be on the offensive, uh, breaking and hindering every evil plan, purpose of the devil, the world, and your flesh, but also he is going to strengthen you, keep you firm in his word, and in his faith until you die. He will protect you by guarding you, and he will protect you by going out and beating up your enemies for you. Okay? This is the tie-in, then, with the verse of the week. Where is the will of God found, and where is it manifested? The answer is the same as for the verse of the week. It is found in and manifested in Lord. Yes, but be specific. In Jesus Christ. Yes, yes, in Christ. The will of God is made manifest in Christ. 
who suffers, dies, buried, is buried, and is raised for you. That is where the will of God is, is really made manifest. That is where the will of God is really witnessed and found. So that all of this, where is it that he's going to break and hinder all of this stuff? Well, it happens on the cross, and then everything that's won on the cross is distributed freely to you continuously. What's given at the font is nourished at the altar. And, again, in the death and resurrection of Christ, he will strengthen and keep you firm in his word and in faith until you die. And you can die well as a Christian because you have the hope and confidence in the resurrection and because you've already died. If you die before you die, you don't die when you die. Okay? Questions? Very good. Children, away with you. And... Um, just a little bit of housekeeping. If you are somebody who is in the choir, we're going to end early, which is really to say we're going to end on time. <laughs> and we'll just go into the conference room here to do a quick warm-up and to talk a little bit about how things are going to work in the service today because we didn't have a rehearsal on Tuesday. So things are slightly different. So. We'll just head in there and do a quick warm-up, and I'll uh, tell you what's, what's up for today, okay? Uh, yes, very good. All right. Any questions about anything before we dive in? Very good. You're docile today. It must be the weather. As promised... We're going to talk about good works. So where's the place to start? Well, as a review, the reason that we're talking about good works is because we're talking about the nature and the character of faith. And what led to this is this statement, faith is not static. Faith is living, which means that good works are not optional. They are actually a requirement. Faith is living, it is alive, it does things. Which means that good works are not optional, they are actually requirements. In the same way that it is uh, acceptable to say that breathing is a requirement of being alive. Can you be alive if you don't breathe? Can you, bre can you be alive if your heart doesn't work? Yeah, not for long. <laughs> okay, can you be alive without any assistance? I'm not in this for the technicalities, all right? No loopholes. Hey, no, obviously not. You don't breathe, you don't live. Your heart doesn't work, you don't live. When your heart stops beating, that's just the end. So, just like you need your heart to beat and you need your lungs to work and you need air to breathe, so too the faith that is living also has things that it needs and works are something that go along with faith as just part of the requirement that is a natural requirement. And the reason I say natural requirement is because I don't want you to think that somehow there's some kind of a taskmaster now that says, oh, now you believe I'm going to force you to do good works against your will. hoo because that's not exactly how it is. It works are a natural requirement, and if you're 
in the faith than works are actually a joy to perform. It's the same idea, uh, the, it's the same idea as the Ten Commandments or even about marriage, uh, husbands loving their wives and wives loving and submitting to their husbands, as St. Paul talks about. Uh, the, all of this is the same. Uh, there's a reason why the language of the church is the bride. Song of Solomon is a beautiful book, uh, beautiful book about love, but the reason why it's so important, in addition to being beautiful, is because it describes the love of the bridegroom for the church and the church's love for her bridegroom. Uh, so the idea that love and obedience are the same thing, that's what this is. A natural requirement means that it's, it's, it's a joy, it's the same thing. It's really easy to obey somebody or to submit to somebody uh, whom you know has your best interests at heart, who you know will never ask more of you than, than is uh, proper, who you know will always care for you, will never turn away from you. If that person says, hey, could you do this for me? It's so easy to say, yeah, of course. Easiest thing in the world. And that's the Ten Commandments. Love and obedience. When the Lord says, hey, follow me, do this, do that, take care of this person, take care of that person, give tithes, give alms, do this. You say, yeah, of course. That's a no-brainer. Well, <laughs> yeah, sure, I'll do that. Well, sure, I'll take care of the dogs. Sure, I'll clean the cat litter. It's just a no-brainer, I'll take care of that for you. Okay? So this is what I mean. So there's a couple passages that I want to look at before we get into the meat of this. The first one is from James, of course. If you want to talk about works, you've got to look at James. The infamous epistle of straw, as Luther called it. But even Luther understood that when the church says this is an important book, one person is not enough to say it isn't. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is a book that is hard to read for people who say faith alone, faith alone, faith alone, but who don't understand what faith alone really means. We'll talk all about that this week and not next week, because next week, next week is a hymn, but the week after that, because I am certain we're not going to get everything done today. Just something's telling me. Yeah, well, it only took two years, right? <laughs> oh, dear. I th and I thought Mama drowned the dumb ones. Uh, so, let's look at page 320 in your hymnal. This is everybody's favorite thing. So while you're turning there, I'm going to read you a couple other passages. First from 1 John. You know, the epistles of John are really short. They're easy to read, and somehow people still don't read them. Uh, but they should. In fact, someday we'll do a Bible study on the epistles of John here because they're so good. Um, he who loves God must love his brother also. Where's the wiggle room there? <laughs> there isn't any. <laughs> Listen. Yeah, yeah, you know. So here's the thing. Life, theology, the world, 
It's not so black and white. People want to make it black and white, and there are certainly some things that are black and white, but it isn't so black and white as folks would want it to be. Most of the time, it's gray, and it's nebulous, and there's, there are two poles where black and white exist, but everything else in the middle is some form or hue of gray. And this is something I think that you learn with age and experience. The more, more experience and wisdom you get in life and the older that you get, um, the more gray you see when you look at the world. Uh, it's really easy as a bright-eyed seminary student to look at all of your books and to say, oh, life and everything is black and white. Uh, when I get to a church, if I see people who believe this or who don't believe this, they're out, black and white. And uh, then you get out into the real world and you realize that people are people, not little points of black and white, and their lives are their lives, and those aren't points of black and white either, and you somehow have to traverse the sea of gray knowing what you know. Now, all of this being said, 1 John 4.21 is not gray. You must love your brother also. That is final. That is black and white. You either love your brother or you don't love your brother. What verse again? 4.21. 1 John 4.21. That's the, what I just read. Now, of course, certainly you can say, I don't love my brother as I ought. And in fact, if you didn't say that, you'd be a liar. John, if you told me, I love my brother exactly the way that the Lord would have me love him, I'm never angry with him, I never pick on him or tease him or pull any kind of pranks on him, I would tell you, see me after church for confession. Because <laughs> you're a nice boy, but I don't think you're that nice. Okay, so certainly you're not going to love as you ought, but that's one reason why confession and absolution is there. That's one reason why the church is here, why the Eucharist is here. As C.S. Lewis says, you go to the Eucharist so you can learn to love the people that you hate. How are you going to learn to be better? How are you going to be taught? How are you going to be transformed if you're not here where all of that's going to take place? How are you going to receive your medicine if you're not in the hospital? Okay? Which is, of course, what the church is, one of the many things that the church is, a hospital. So, yeah, this is, you know, this is tangential, of course, but the folks who say, well, I, I couldn't possibly go to the church. I couldn't possibly be a Christian because you're all a bunch of hypocrites. You say, well, yeah, we are. That's kind of the whole point. Yeah, always, there's always room for more. That's like going to the hospital and saying, well, I couldn't possibly be admitted to the hospital because that's a place for sick people. <coughs> I couldn't go there. <laughs> I mean, it's a ludicrous thing to say. Of course the church is full of hypocrites. I mean, look outside the church and tell me a place that isn't full of hypocrites. I'll just say that. Uh, but in the church, at least, is the place where the hypocrites are getting the medicine for hypocrisy the place where the murderers and slanderers are getting the medicine for murdering and slandering, the place where unloving people are getting the medicine for being unloving and where they are learning to strive toward 
being loving, striving toward the good, and given, in fact, the, uh, the grace and the ability to do just that, and the strength to do that. So, uh, but this is black and white. Yes, you're not going to love your, your brother as you should, but that's why the language of confession and absolution is the way it is. I mean, you say that every Sunday and any time you come for private, and, private uh, confession and absolution. Yeah, I haven't loved my brother as I ought, but I know that I should. I know where I need to be. It's sort of like being a musician. And I suppose this applies to anything. You, you hone a skill and you spend hours and hours and hours practicing. As a music major, I spent probably eight to 12 hours at least every single day doing nothing but sitting in a tiny, dirty room practicing. Sometimes I would spend hours practicing the same three notes over and over and over and over again. So you go through all of that and you get good. Your body learns. Your brain learns where your body should be and it helps to tell your body what it ought to be able to do. And then you can play the piano or you can play the horn and you can do it well because you know where, where you are and what you're supposed to be doing. But then you spend a few years away from whatever skill or craft you, you once honed. And... You pick it up again thinking, oh, this is going to be great, and all of a sudden, nothing works. Nothing works the way that it should. Your brain still remembers everything that you used to be able to do, how dexterous you used to be, how fast you used to be, how beautiful you used to be able to play, but your body just can't do it because it's out of practice. It's, it's a struggle. It's work. That's kind of like what this is. Your brain... In this case, your faith and the mind of the new man knows where it ought to be and it knows what it ought to be doing. But somehow, even though you know, I love God, I really do, and I know that I really do love my brother, but sometimes I just can't help it. Sometimes I just really don't like him and I really don't treat him the way that I ought. And, and sometimes I'm in a bad mood and I... Uh, give the Philadelphia hello to the people in the lane next to me. Uh, uh, you know, but I don't want to do it. It just, I do it. And then you come to private confession and absolution. You say, I, I did this. I can't stop doing this. And you say, well, yeah, we know. We know. But that's why you come, you get your absolution. You get strength on the way. Life is a pilgrimage, the Christian life at any rate. The Christian life is a pilgrimage. It's a journey. You're on your way. And uh, you're going to trip, you're going to fall, you're going to stumble, and that's okay. Jesus is here. He'll help you get back up, and he'll dust you off a little bit. He'll give you a, a snack along the way. Here, eat some of this. This will make you better, okay? So, then this is, this is the last one. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. If you think faith alone means all I have to do is believe in Jesus and tell everybody that he's my personal Lord and Savior and accept him intellectually, then you don't understand the nature of faith. If that's really what you think. See, because we are different than our evangelical brothers and sisters. Or at least we ought to be. Lutherans ought to be. Um, but Lutherans have, we've drunk the Kool-Aid and we've lost what it really means to understand faith alone.
because as I've said time and time and time again, even just going through this study, faith is not about your intellect. Faith is not about saying, I affirm that Jesus Christ was a real man who died for my sins, the end, and that's all that I need. Faith alone, well, I believe in Jesus. I don't need to come to church because Jesus knows I believe in him and that's good enough, right? Faith alone. I can be a Christian and say that I believe in Jesus and I can never go to church and I can keep on giving people the Philadelphia hello and anything else that I want to do, right? Because faith alone, and I, and I have faith because I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Do you hear that? There's something kind of off about it, isn't there? Because faith isn't just about saying, oh, I believe. I mean, I'm glad that you believe and I want you to continue believing, but that's not all that faith is. Um, what is baptism? What does it do? I mean, think, of, think just for a second about the language of the catechism. And if you have your hymnal open to page 320, you can cheat and skip forward a few pages to where the catechism says it. But baptism, what is it? According to Titus, if you remember your, your explanations. A... Sure, let me, let me ask you the right question to jog your memory. Uh, how can water do such great things? Well, yeah, I was going to say, it's not just the water, but it is the water. Okay? Uh, but here's the thing, okay? We're, I'm going to skip a bit. St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Baptism is rebirth. Think of John chapter 3. Who does Jesus talk to in John chapter 3? This is just trivia. Testing you to see if your synapses are firing. John chapter 3. Somebody sneaks out at night to go talk to Jesus. Do you remember who it is? Nicodemus. What did you say? Muttering under his breath. Are you muttering correctly, Daryl? Nicodemus. Yeah, Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Why does he come to Jesus at night? Because he's the chief priest. Yeah, because he's one of the guys that hate Jesus. Yeah. But he doesn't agree with them. But he can't risk his position. He's going to come to see Jesus at night. What does Jesus tell him? Well, you have to be reborn. And what does he say? Unless you are born of water and the Spirit. Yeah, but what does Nicodemus say? Oh. You, you have to be reborn, Nicodemus. And he says, oh. yeah. Right, how can I enter back into my mother's womb and be born again? I don't think that would be very comfortable for anybody involved. And he said, well, listen, fella, you don't really understand what you're saying. There is a rebirth that takes place in baptism. Death to the self, alive to Christ. It's rebirth. You're a new person. That means you live differently. You know, part of being baptized and living the life of faith is just that, living the life of faith. Faith is not intellectual assent. It is a life. You are a new person in baptism. You are a completely brand new person. How do I know that? Because I'm the one that drowned the old person. Not really. It was, it was Jesus, really. But you get what I'm saying. 
You can't come to that font and hear the flood prayer about drowning hard-hearted Pharaoh and hear all the talk about, this is death, the waters of judgment, but the ark of the church will save you, eight souls in all, and then have the water come and go, you're drowned, you've died, you're done. But now you're a new person coming up out of the font. That's why the early church would baptize Yes, they did it by immersion. It's okay, don't worry. But the fonts were sort of cross-shaped. Oh, I'll draw you a picture. I'll draw you a picture. I'll put, see this is, you know, putting that seminary education to good use. <laughs> okay, so this is And then they would have I heard somebody talk, but I'm going to pretend I didn't because I feel like it was criticism. <laughs> See? And then there's water in here. So you, it's a one-way street, the baptismal font. You go in one side and you come out the other. You, go, you walk down. You're baptized, it's the death of the self, and then you come back out on the other side because it's resurrection. If you die before you die, you don't die when you die. Here's dying before you die, and then here's where you don't die when you die because you're being raised, coming up. But you're a new person now, it's not the same. They would baptize naked too. You'd take all your clothes off and go down in completely naked, just like being reborn, and then you'd come back out and they'd put a white garment on you Here's the, here's the clothes of the new person. Now come in here to church. You weren't allowed in here before, but now the doors are open. Come on in. And the Eucharist is there. So um, you're, a, you're a new person. So you can't just say that, well, faith alone will save me because I believe in Jesus. Because it's not... Faith certainly does believe, but that's not all that faith is or does. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I hear two questions there. Uh, the first one is about rebaptism. The second is about is immersion better, or what do we think about immersion? What would I say if someone said immersion was better? Is that right? Sure. Okay. So let me address those in the order that I heard them. Rebaptism is not something that should ever be performed, generally speaking. If you came to me and said, I was a Seventh-day Adventist, I would say, okay, were you baptized? And you say, well, yes. I say, in whose name were you baptized? Well, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I say, well, then you're baptized and it's good. If, if we tie the efficacy of baptism to the walls of a denomination, oh, you weren't baptized as a Lutheran? Well, I don't know, you better go talk to pastor, maybe have, have him fix that for you. Well, see, then 
then the efficacy of your baptism isn't really on God, is it? Then he's not really the one doing it. It's whatever person within the four walls is doing it. So baptism is effective, uh, just like consecration of the elements, as the, as the reformers wrote in the confessions, is also uh, valid. Uh, there was a whole controversy about this way back in the day, the Donatist controversy in the early church. So the reformers didn't actually say anything new. But the idea that somebody who was a, a priest that didn't agree with me on things consecrated, is it still the body and blood of Christ? Yes, it is. So you go to some place like an Episcopalian church. They speak the verba. They do everything. Is it the body and blood of Christ? Yeah. It's, it's not a magic word. It's not an incantation to where, well, anybody, could, well, you wave a magic wand, but only the person who wears the hat can do it. Uh, only the person in the denominational walls can do it. So if you came to me and said that you had been baptized and the name into which you had been baptized was the Trinitarian name and you had been baptized with water, I would say you, don't worry about getting rebaptized. Now, here are some exceptions. One, there's no record of your baptism. You don't remember if you've been baptized, and nobody around you who knows you or is close to you has any recollection that you ever were baptized. If you have no recollection of it, you have no record of it, none of the churches where you thought you were, might have been baptized have a record of it, nobody remembers anything, then you can say, I think I was baptized, I was told I was baptized, but there's no record of it, and I don't know for sure. In a case like that, up to pastoral discretion, a rebaptism, or a, at least a potential rebaptism, would be permitted for the sake of your own conscience. The other, uh, the other exception would be if you were baptized, but it wasn't in the name of the triune God. Uh, or I would say if there wasn't water. Like somebody just said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with a dry thumb. Well, it says that there's water that must be present. So if there's no water at all, but the bigger thing, the water thing is small. I don't know of anybody who would treat baptism without water. Even the people that, complete, that, that diverge completely from the teaching of the church on baptism still tend to use water. Okay? But <clears throat> there are many real-world instances of people being baptized, but it's not into the triune name. This is why we don't mess with the language of the church. We don't, especially don't mess with the language that God himself has given. If God himself says, I am Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, baptized into my name, then we don't try and be cute with it. We don't try and make something that's going to sound better. We use the words he has given us, and we say the words he has given us to say. Baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I knew someone at the seminary who was rebaptized as a seminarian, because he was a former Methodist who was baptized in the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. Now, is that the Trinity? That's the question. Is the Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier the Trinity? Definitions of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I would, well, sh yes, I would maybe not use the word definitions. I would maybe say descriptions of work. Uh, yeah. Uh, but the short answer <clears throat> is, if you had to commit to a yes or no, yes, creator, redeemer, and sanctifier is the Trinity. But here's the kicker. Is creator, redeemer, and sanctifier the triune name? No, it is not. 
So you are not baptized into the triune name. You're not baptized into the jobs of the Trinity. You're baptized into the name of the Trinity. That name is of the utmost importance. Uh, so that's a case where rebaptism would be permitted. But even in those circumstances, it's never something that is taken lightly. That creator uh, being a sanctifier is a way some liberal churches would uh, degender Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, it is. Um, but it's a whole lot better than mother, daughter, and guiding force or whatever. Which, which is, uh, you're laughing, but I didn't actually make that up. Um, in fact, when I was Christian Reformed, when I was much younger, there was a woman at the church we attended who said, when I read the Bible, I always substitute the male pronouns for God with female pronouns because it just makes me connect to God way better. So, the idea is nothing new. Now, to the second part of the question, though. This is the part of the question I really, really like. Immersion? No immersion. Which one is better? Can I use an eyedropper on your forehead? Or do I need to take you out to Big Lake? It doesn't Why doesn't it matter? Okay, sure, it's water. Can you... Can you answer that putting the focus on the Lord? Can you answer that in such a way that, yes, you're, you're not wrong, but there's a, there's a particular thing I'm trying to push toward. Anybody can answer it. Okay, yes. This is, this is the question you always have to ask. Who's doing the baptism? Is it the guy who's dressed all fancily up there or is it the Lord? It's the Lord. Whose baptism is it? It's not mine. Are you baptized into the name of Pastor Ferguson? Are you baptized into the name of Paul or Apollos? Hey, look at that. I connected it to the Bible. Aren't you proud? Okay. Uh, no, you're not. You're baptized into the name of the Lord, the triune name of God. It's the Lord who does the baptism. It's not me that makes it work. So if it is the Lord who is the one doing the baptism, then I think the Lord can manage to accomplish a baptism where there are the things that the Lord says he wants to be present, water and the word. You want to know who agrees with that statement? The apostles. And I would much rather, this is going to be an uncharitable thing to say, and I'm, so I'll preface it right there. I would much rather listen to the apostles than the apostolics. Because I think that one of them, one of those groups of people really knows what they're saying. And it's the apostles. And here's what the apostles say. Yeah, if you have a lot of water, it's great to baptize by immersion. It's even better to baptize in living water, which is... Uh, d translated in different ways depending on who you ask. Is it living because of the word that's active in it or is it living because it's moving? And uh, I like to hedge my bets and say, yes. 
So, so there are some places where you can go, some churches, that will have just a tiny little pump or something in the baptismal font that's hidden. You don't hear it, you don't see it, but the water ripples. Or it'll push the water just barely over the top of the font and it'll roll over. But when you look at it, it shimmers because it's living water, because it's moving. Okay, but, so that's what they say. Well, living water is really good. Uh, immersion is really good. But if you can't do that, uh, then find a different place to baptize. And you can use still water, and that's fine. Uh, and if you can't baptize by immersion, that's okay, too. You can put some water on the head just with your hand like that. Uh, that's all fine. Anything works as long as you have water in the Word. Now, that's what the apostles themselves say. So anybody who tells you that it has to be one way or another is telling you something that the church has never said. It, it, this is the bigger problem, though. If you say that baptism has to be a certain way, uh, other than water and word, then you're essentially putting the Lord in a box that he did not put himself into. Don't get me wrong. The Lord does put himself into boxes. Um, but all of the boxes he puts himself into are for your benefit. So this is, baptism is, in a sense, where the Lord has put himself into a box because he said water and word. This is a baptism. He didn't say, I don't know, barley and a fancy song. That'll be a baptism too. He said water and word, and this is the word that is the, that you, that is the baptism right here, the triune name. So that's a, that's a box that he has put himself into, but he hasn't put himself so deeply into that box that he says, well, but even if you have water in the word, it has to be this kind of water, and it has to be done this way, and if you don't sing the words at precisely this pitch, well, then it's all, all bets are off. It didn't work. You know, it's, there is some specificity, and then there's a lot of non-specificity. Does that make sense? Water in the word. And then the church has the ceremony that surrounds it, the baptismal rite, that little baptismal liturgy. And that's good. I mean, you, sh you shouldn't do away with that. There's a lot of really good stuff there. And everything serves to teach, as you know. Uh, everything in that liturgy is there for a specific reason, to talk about what's happening, to preach about the nature of what's happening, to uh, rem remind you of what did happen to you and to jog your memory about, oh yeah, that's right, I am supposed to be living like a Christian now, aren't I? Or to say, oh yeah, I was a baptismal sponsor and I haven't checked in on my, uh, my godchildren, my, my uh, little Christian kids in a while and I should maybe do that to make sure that they're actually learning what they're supposed to learn and, and being brought up in the faith the way that I promised I would make sure they are, Okay. Pastor, are there any Missouri Synod Lutheran churches that immerse? Uh, well, I can't say with certainty. I don't know of any off the top of my head, but I'm not going to say no because I'm sure that there, I'm sure that there are. I would if we had a, if we had a baptismal font that looked like that, where I could walk in with you and you could go down and then come back up. I'd baptize by immersion. If you've never been baptized and you really want to be baptized by immersion, I'll go down a big lake with you and I'll baptize you right there. I mean, it, I'm not against baptism by immersion by any stretch. I'm against mandating that baptism by immersion is the only thing that makes baptism work. That's the distinction. If you want to be baptized at the font, that's fine. If you're dying in the hospital and I find out you've never been baptized and all that I have is a little eyedropper with a couple drops of water, I'll drop you with the eyedropper and baptize you. Or if you want to go out to the lake, I'll baptize you there too. Yes? Do you think also because we 
usually at birth or shortly after birth, we don't tend to immerse. Maybe. Have you ever looked at... <laughs> have you ever uh, watched a, a video of the Orthodox Church baptizing? Because they baptize in a font, so if you're an adult, you obviously can't be immersed. But the font's big enough that they can immerse the babies, and they take those babies and they go, whoosh, and they come back up, and the baby comes up like this. So they baptize by immersion for the babies. So there's nothing that says just because we're baptizing babies, we don't baptize by immersion. Um, I think it's just kind of a tradition that we've come into and had for some time. I think it's harder to, especially if you're designing a church, it's harder nowadays to have a church that has a giant pit right in it that, you know, go get the garden hose, got to fill up the baptismal font. You know, it's, uh, it's just a little bit more difficult, I'd say. But here's, okay, I'll say this, though. If you really want to be baptized by immersion, we'll do it at the lake and not at the swimming pool because I'm not going to baptize you in chlorine. Okay? That was going to be my question is uh, uh, living water doesn't have chlorine. Yeah, that's right. The, the pool water is not living water. That's pretty dead water. Uh, so we'll take you out to the, the lake. Anyway, okay. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I suppose I don't have a good answer for... For that, we do baptize babies, but there are a lot of denominations that do, and they still practice baptism by immersion, even with the infants. Some of those Russian churches, it's, it's, in some ways, it's funny. Maybe if you have like a dark sense of humor, like I kind of do. But when they come to the churches and they use an ice pick to pick the chunk of ice off the top of the baptismal font before they fully immerse the baby in it. But there's, I mean, the babies never cry for their baptisms because they're just get the wind sucked right out of them. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, so there are a lot of churches that still will baptize by immersion even with infants, and I suppose if somebody really asked me to, I would figure out a way to do it if they wanted, but, yes. Um, back to the uh, idea of, of uh, adult baptism as opposed to a, a baby. Yeah, sure. Uh, I was told, well, Pastor Jenkins said, that baptism was the New Testament reply or answer to circumcision. That, that baptism took the place of circumcision of the Old Testament. Yes, baptism corresponds to circumcision. Baptism isn't circumcision. It corresponds to it and, uh, and I would say fulfills it in Christ. Um, St. Paul is, or St. Peter says that baptism or circumcision corresponds to baptism. Um, and that's the mark of the promise, right? Where is the mark of the promise? Well, you're, you're taken to the font, you're baptized into the name, and then that name is branded into your flesh through, through that holy water that's put on you. Uh, so you have the new identity. You aren't, like, you're not your own people anymore. Abraham is not his own person anymore. Now he is the Lord's because he bears the Lord's mark in the flesh. That's what baptism is. You bear a mark in the flesh now. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to the Lord. And you're marked as one who is redeemed and who is sanctified by the blood of the Lamb through the water. There's, there's a lot to say about blood and water coming out of Jesus' side, which we can't get into now. But here's what I do want to do. I want to set the stage for the next time we start talking about works. Um, we didn't make it even as far as I thought we might. So I, we absolutely have to do this. 
um, on page 320 in your hymnal, this is the Athanasian Creed. Yeah, I see that face, and I see it every time we confess this in church, by the way. I might not react to your faces, but I register them all. Okay? Say what you will about the Athanasian Creed. Is it redundant? Yes, but it's redundant to make a point. There's no loopholes here. Okay, but here's what I want to look at. The very end, we'll look at verse 38. At his coming, all people will rise again with their bodies. How, and and who's, this, who's going to rise? All people. all people. Oh, so it's kind of like what we talked about last week then, isn't it? All people are going to rise and give an account concerning their own deeds. Yeah, works. Well, where does it say faith? Who's going to stand up and say, oh, but I believed in you. I really did. I believed in you. Faith alone, right? I had faith in you. Well, the creed doesn't say that. It says deeds. And those who have done good will enter into eternal life, and those who have done evil into eternal fire. Those who have believed in Jesus, no, done good. Well, whatever are we to make of this? This is the kind of stuff I love. I love it. <clears throat> what are we to make of that? Does that mean no faith? Does it mean on the last day when Christ comes, he's going to say, I don't care about your faith at all. Show me what you've done. Yeah, they work hand in hand. I, this is the image that I want you to think about. You've got a car. You all have your, your vehicles. You all happen to make it here this morning. There is a part of the car that you sit in and from which you control where you go. There is also a part of the car that controls how the car goes, that moves the car. Can you get where you want to go with only one of those two things? Can you saddle up the engine and ride it into town? Can you sit in your driver's seat while the car sits up on cinder blocks in your front yard with the engine dropped out of it and say, hey-ho, silver away, take me to church? Neither of those is going to work. The car needs the engine, and you need the place to sit and to drive the car. Faith and works are the same way. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. You can't have faith that doesn't have works, and you can't do works without faith. Yes? I like, uh, this is a particular favorite passage of life, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. <clears throat> Would say for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a work, so that no one can boast. But then that's that's central to the Reformation, that's central to Lutheran faith, except that sometimes verse 10 has been neglected, perhaps, and it goes on and says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. To do good works. 
Yes, yeah, you've been created to do good works. We'll talk more about that uh, at, next time because you have beaten me to one of the places I was trying to get. Um, but yes, so this is one of the places I want to look in our last minutes here, Mark chapter 11. You know, here's another way to think about it while you're turning to Mark 11. You are, and this goes along with Ephesians 2, right? You are a new person in baptism. You are created and joined to Christ. You follow Christ where he goes. You are made holy. And the Lord would have you as holy people act like holy people. The Lord would have you follow Jesus where he goes. The Lord would have you talk the way Jesus talks and behave the way Jesus behaves. You're a new person that is created for a new life. So, Mark 11 beginning at verse 12. Now the next day, when they had come out of Bethany, he, that is Jesus, was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Uh, okay. The, we'll talk more about this, but I want this fresh in your mind. I want you to hear it. The fig tree. That Jesus, why does he go to the fig tree? Okay, but why does he, why does he approach it? Well, he wants it to have fruit on it. He wants to eat the fig tree. Does it have fruit on it? No, so he curses it. This is a really good narrative for talking about works. You're a new person created, newly created for good works, to live the new life of faith. 
when the Lord returns and he looks at you, he's going to look for the faithful stewards, the ones who invested the money and got more in interest. He's going to look for the fig trees that bore fruit. There's a lot of that language, that our faith might bear good fruit. And of course, the fruit of the Spirit is love for your neighbor. So the Lord wishes that all of the trees would bear figs, all of the trees would bear good fruit. And the good fruit is works. Okay. Him next week. Week after that, we'll keep talking about works. We'll see you at the altar. Again, if you're in the choir, let's go into the conference room for just a quick minute.